Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills that we may be completely yours, utterly dedicated to you, and then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Um, I know we've got a number of new people today in catechesis, and I'm glad to have you here. Um, Catechesis is something which um, modern Christians are not so used to, and certainly those who are not Christians are not used to at all. Um, But this idea that that a church would spend a year or more uh, forming people in the Christian faith and life uh, seems a bit absurd, right? Maybe? Hopefully? A little bit? Just so I can get my point made? Okay. (laughs) Um, Well, think about it. How do you join a church in North America today? Yeah, you show up and you say, like, I'm here. And and, uh, for a lot of places, you just, you know, you sign a check and they take your address from the check and now you're on the mailing list and that's it. And I would admit we do that here too. Uh, but, But we really do say, and I say, we want you to go through a year's process of catechesis. Now, what is catechesis? Um, catechesis refers to uh, that Greek word, and katecheo in Greek means instruction. Um, Paul, at one point in the Corinthian correspondence, says, I would rather um, use five words with my mind in order to instruct others, and he uses the word katecheo, uh, than 10,000 in a tongue. Um, can you imagine what five words he would say with his mind? <laughs> but, but there it is. Um, instruction matters. Um, and in the ancient church, uh, this instruction took uh, as long as three years. Imagine this, you know, um, if you were to become a Christian back, let's say you were a, oh, third century Roman. You were a pagan. I mean, you believed in the God of biscuits and the God of... Um, you know, frogs and toads and stuff, and, and you must be made a Christian. I mean, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It takes. Uh, these are people who are completely unfamiliar with Scripture, completely unfamiliar uh, with, with the God of, um, of the Bible. So it took time, uh, and, and it was this formation, formational period prior to baptism uh, that, that really uh, meant that, um, when you were baptized, you were taking on this whole new life, um, a very different life than anything that you'd had before. Um, and what happens after that period in history? Well, everyone's a Christian now, so we don't have to worry about it, do we? <clears throat> Try again. How, how well does it work? Not very well. We're going to keep doing it, though. And, and the reality is that this has been kept up for over a thousand years, the church saying, oh, we don't need to do that. And, and what's the answer? Yeah. If we don't, the whole thing falls apart. Um, the church is dependent in every age on catechesis. Um, so uh, one of the goals that we have here is just to renew that practice. And I think that's something which is happening in a lot of places, not just here, but in a lot of places. But that's being refounded. Um, and for the purposes of catechesis, we have what's called a catechism. Um, a catechism is a uh, particular device uh, coming in around the time of the Reformation that's formed and formulated in questions and answer format. And in those days, it was specifically, usually for children to memorize. 
so that you could you know, march up to a child and say, child, what is your name, right? Something like that, and then they would answer, and then you'd, you'd begin this whole line of questioning. And so you have all kinds of catechisms. You've got Luther's small catechism. You've got the Westminster small catechism. You've got the Heidelberg catechism. You've got all these catechisms that come out of that Reformation uh, tradition. And Anglicans have had catechisms, too, buried in the backs of our prayer books which uh, used to be used off and on, but then completely were not used because everyone said, well, that's so dreadfully boring. Who would want to do that? And in a generation, uh, the kind of uh, basic formation which children uh, might have received was completely gone. Um, Anyway, uh, and that's the end of my rant. But uh, you see the point, which is that um, today, even people that we consider to be mature Christians lack the basics. Um, and so the purpose of this class is just to kind of give the basics. Now you may say, I've been, in, I grew up in church, and I, you know, I've been doing this for years and years and years. Well, take comfort in the fact that I learn something every time I teach this class. So uh, that's just a, a, a rejoinder to those who are joining the class. Um, typically, I ask that people spend a whole year in this, um, meaning from about the end of August up till uh, Easter. So that's a whole, well, it's 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 a lot of the year, um, but. But we do continue it on past that. Um, And once you've spent that year, you're eligible, um, at least in my mind, to be confirmed. Um, And uh, confirmation is when the bishop comes and lays hands on you and prays for you, uh, that you'll receive the increase of the Holy Spirit. Um, It is also making a very public commitment uh, to um, your baptism as well. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. If you'd like to be confirmed, the bishop is coming April 23rd of this year, and I know that a number of you have been preparing for that, and uh, if you'd like to get on the list, I think we can probably uh, find room for you. I know there's always room, right? So uh, please keep that in mind as well. All right, we've been talking about prayer. Remember, there are three pillars to the catechism, and the pillars are the creed, the Apostles' Creed in particular. Why the Apostles' Creed and not the Nicene Creed? Does anyone know this? Yeah, the Apostles' Creed is the baptismal creed. Um, and uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the church in the first several centuries, um, the Apostles' Creed, as it became more and more galvanized, I mean, there were, every church started with their own kind of um, individual creed, but the creed, um, the Apostles' Creed, um, which many of the church fathers believed was actually written by the apostles, which is not true, but uh, it's, it's kind of a wonderful story. Uh, this became the galvanizing creed into which you were baptized. Um, next, the Lord's Prayer as a pattern and practice of teaching prayer. So right now we're teaching prayer using the Lord's Prayer and then also the Ten Commandments um, as the third pillar. All right. Let's begin. We've talked about um, hallowed be thy name, and let's give a little bit of a, a review of this. When the Lord's Prayer speaks of hallowed be thy name, which is, you know, the, this kind of central thing, it doesn't mean so much that it's not just a bare, a bare statement of the fact that God's name is holy, is it? What is it? What's that? It's a call to action, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's, an ask, it's asking God to sanctify his name Um, even in my own life. Um, And because, remember, the Lord's Prayer, how does the Lord's Prayer begin? Does it begin, my Father who art in heaven? No. How does it begin? Our Father. It's a corporate prayer. 
uh, meant to be prayed not only individually but also but most importantly as, as a part of a living and praying body the church so we are asking that God's name would be hallowed in the church um, let me ask this let's go through these last three questions here in this section on the first petition uh, question 173 how can you hallow God's name God is king of all the earth, and I pray that all people everywhere may revere and worship him according to his revelation in Christ and the Holy Scriptures. So it's not only called that I would hallow God's name, but what? That all people everywhere would revere and worship him. So I want to say this uh, as strongly as I can. The Lord's Prayer is an evangelical prayer. Did you catch that last week in catechesis? This is, this is the prayer of Jesus. And when he teaches this prayer, he's inviting his disciples into his divine life as the Son of God. Um, and, and Augustine goes at great length to talk about this. He, he stretches his arms wide on the cross, appealing to the Father uh, to make more sons, more daughters. Yes? Um, and this is a, a beautiful thing, but it, the Lord's Prayer... Uh, does speak to this. Hallowed be thy name. And we'll say even more about that when we get to the next petition, thy kingdom come. How does God answer this petition? God gives grace that I may honor his holy name and word in private and public worship. And he enables me to walk humbly with him, my God. Okay. What do we need in order to hallow God's name? Yeah, we need his help, right? Because left to our own devices, what do we do? The opposite of hallowing God's name often, yes? I mean, think about it. When you get angry, what do you hopefully not do? But maybe, I mean, if you're honest about it, what do you do? You curse, right? You curse. You can curse many names, usually not your own, but you curse many names. Um, and we need God's grace. We need this gift of supernatural power um, to hallow his name. And not only to hallow it in daily life, but to hallow his name in private and public worship. So the Lord's Prayer actually invites God to, um, to give us the grace needed um, to worship well, to pray well. Um, note we speak not only of um, private worship, but public worship as well. And sometimes we often think of um, worship in one way or another, but um, in the Lord's Prayer... Both are held up, yes? And I think this is actually really important. Some people have never prayed the Lord's Prayer just by themselves. Um, and that this is sort of something that they've only ever done, or sometimes never done. Some of you have spent most of your life in churches where written prayers, including the written prayers of Scripture, are not prayed. <laughs> um, because, well, what's, what's the concern? Yeah, authenticity, right? I mean, we, live in, we live in an age in which everything has to be authentic or it's just invalid. And by authentic, what do we mean? Yeah, radical, spontaneous self-expression, okay? That's what it means to be authentic. Um, well, let me just say this. Jesus, from the very earliest time he could read, started to memorize the Psalter. How do we know this? Yeah, he's a Jew, right? That's what Jews did. But not only that, think about it. From the cross, what does he do? He recites the Psalter. He recites the Psalms. Um, and he, listen, when the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples, what's his response? 
Well, you got to go into your room and you got to think all these thoughts and then out of your thoughts will come prayers. What does he say? When you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Why does he do this? Because when you pray, you need a pattern, right? Remember how we were talking about this last week? The kind of like freeform sewing sounds wonderful until you try to do it without a pattern. What do you wind up with? Yeah, pants with one leg four inches shorter than the other and pockets that are closed at the thigh, at the waist. Like, it just doesn't work, right? You, you use a pattern because the pattern is reliable. And the Lord's Prayer is a reliable pattern for prayer. Now, course, right? Down the road, uh, when you develop this, you start, you, by, by praying the Lord's Prayer, and sometimes as slowly as you possibly can, you actually learn to pray. It's an amazing thing. Um, I think often of uh, Teresa of Avila, who had this, you know, was one of the greatest mystics the church has ever had. And she always brought with her into her private prayers a book of prayers that she'd had her whole life. Now, she rarely, if ever, used it, right? But she brought it. Why? Just in case, which never happened, just in case she was a little dry, I've got that to lean on. Okay? Um, all the great saints have started with, with, with written prayers that, um, that they can learn. And think about this, too. Even if, even if you come out of a tradition which opposes written prayer, um, you still sing hymns. You still sing praise and worship choruses, right? Those are written prayers. Um, so it's something to consider. Um, but the Lord's Prayer lays out that most basic pattern. And I think you're going to see why as we go through the petitions. All right, well, let's get into it in the second petition. I know we're going to skip 175, but it's okay. Actually, I do want to draw one point. <laughs> 175 speaks to the need for an obedient and ordered life. Um, and I think this is really important that um, so much of prayer, because it's assumed that prayer will be, um, will be rooted in radical self-expression, becomes orderless. Um, meaning that uh, it's kind of considered that if you, you don't want to pray at regular times because that might stifle your creativity, right? Um, you don't want to get too rigid so just pray spontaneously all the time. Um, has anybody tried that? Like really applied themselves to that? How well does it work? It, it doesn't, right? We know it doesn't. Uh, ordered prayer. Remember the words of the psalmist, five times a day do I praise you. Um, and so Christians throughout the centuries have said in very, in very, um, in very powerful ways, um, we have to have an ordered prayer life. Um, and, and I'm going to just be really brutally honest with you. That means same time, same bat time, same bat place every day, right? Is this, this is not a reference some of you are getting. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, but it, it's that ordered life which, which really matters. And, you know, our lives are getting disordered all the time, right? I mean, it used to be that on Thursday night you had your favorite TV shows, and if you didn't watch them Thursday night, you didn't see them. I know that's also kind of weird for some of you. Uh, you know, binge watching hadn't come yet. But now, if we want to watch a show, we just kind of like, oh, I've got a little bit of time, I'll watch this. And like, we are, 
uh, being formed in patterns of life that exemplify ADHD, okay? And so um, one of the ways to combat this is regular prayer, preferably as part of a group, actually. Um, um, that's that's a, a really big key. Okay. What is the second petition? Question 176. The second petition is thy kingdom come. What is the kingdom? The kingdom of God is his reign over all the world and in the hearts of his people through the powerful and effective operation of his Holy Spirit. Okay. We had said a great deal about the kingdom of God in the previous section on the creed. Now we're talking about um, the same thing, just in a different facet. And that is the reign of God over all the world and in the hearts of his people through the powerful and effective operation of the Holy Spirit. Um, Prayer um, would not be possible were it not for the work of the Holy Spirit. Can we agree with that just for a second? Even if you're kind of like, "Eh, I don't know, just go with me for a bit, okay? (laughs) Listen. Um, we, and we spoke about this last week, we have been formed in this idea that God is way out there and that we sort of broadcast from our spiritual satellites uh, these prayers, which are supposed to travel millions and millions of miles across the galaxy to wherever God is. He's certainly not here, right? Okay, wrong, okay? <laughs> no, in the, listen, for the Christian, God is not this remote deity, but the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ, who has left us his Holy Spirit um, to guard, to strengthen, to empower us, um, to give us his grace, to even pray within us. Um, And, you know, if you look to Paul, what's the sign that we're not cosmic orphans? We have the Holy Spirit living in us. The Holy Spirit testifies, as Paul says, to the fact that we are sons of God, daughters of God. Um, Because the Holy Spirit prays within us. And what does Paul say the Holy Spirit constantly says in prayer? Abba, Father. So, um, we pray as, um, as those who are indwelt by the living God. Um, that is completely different from the way a deist prays. But probably, if you're like me, you kind of grew up in this world where it was like, no, God is way out there, and we sort of have to reach and, and maybe get better antennas and the rest, right? Um, no, no, no. For the Christian, God indwells by his Holy Spirit. And this is the basis of the kingdom. So question 178. When you pray for God's kingdom to come, what do you desire? I pray that the whole creation may enjoy full restoration to its rightful Lord. Um, The thing that we as Christians look forward to is a time in which um, the presence of God will be what? Yeah, filling the earth with his presence, right? I mean, it's one of the glorious things about that I love about church planting, right? Is that, um, and I've said this often, um, it's kind of like taking territory, right? I mean, planting flags all over the earth, right? Um, And saying, this spot, this place, this neighborhood, this town, this community, these people, um, we're going to see the kingdom come here. 
Um, and we pray for that to be the case. Yes. Ordered prayer. Yes. Right. Helpful question. Okay, so so the question is, how does how does the indwelling of the Holy Spirit uh, square with ordered prayer? Um, and I would say two things. First, um, the the common conception that people have of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit, in a sense, sows disorder. Um, this kind of like. Um, spontaneous life, yes? And in many respects, that's true, right? But in a lot of respects, it's also not true. Um, Scripture speaks of the Holy Spirit bringing order, right? Um, And, you know, there's all this wonderful text. Like, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Does freedom mean disorder? In a lot of modern conceptions, yes. They're wrong, Freedom lies in order. I mean, consider that for a second. So there's there's this need to say uh, that the Holy Spirit does bring order, right? Um, so I want to say that first. The, the second thing that I would say is that um, spontaneity and creativity in prayer and, and this kind of spontaneous life of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit is good, yes? Very good. But what does Paul remind us? Read 1 Corinthians. Who are the gifts for? Are they for me and me alone? They're for the whole church. Okay. Also, um, they're to be exercised um, always with an eye um, towards, I mean, think about this. What's the purpose of speaking in tongues, for instance? according to Paul, to build up the church, right? So, and that's an ordered work. Um, so I think there's, there's a need to be very uh, cautious about the kind of ideas which, and, and I've, I've heard at various points in my life Christians pray as if the Holy Spirit's job is to bring chaos because uh, order is bad. This idea that ordered worship is bad. Um, ordered prayers are bad. We need chaos uh, in order to really experience the Spirit. Okay. Um, and part of me just says, well, our vocation as Anglicans is to show that order is good too, right? <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, nobody, I mean, really nobody values ordered worship more than we do. Um, but, but that's another thing altogether. Um, I, think, I, think, I think it is to say precisely that um, There, there has been for a long time a, a theological tradition which holds that um, that disorder has been sown in the fall into creation. Would you agree with that? Okay. So, so what is the redemptive work of the Holy Spirit in the church? To bring order to creation again, right? To bring order through the church. Um, and, and one of the tasks that's hard for us today is to see how that might be a good thing. Um, because we are literally raised to believe that disorder and chaos is the best possible uh, thing. Um, and 
and I will just tell you that disorder and chaos when it comes to prayer uh, is even for the great mystics disconcerting um, so there's that go ahead Well, so, so we have to say this, right? What you basically, what you basically said was, um, isn't it great, I'm, I'm paraphrasing everything, but isn't it great that even when we're feeling really kind of down or um, that our prayers really aren't working, that the Holy Spirit still prays within us? And to which I say a resounding, yes, it's wonderful. Um, but it, and this is what Paul says, yes? That uh, the Holy Spirit intercedes within us. Um, I think it's essential that we also say about this that um, well, let's just say it this way. Prayer is a gift, right? It's not a skill. It's not a talent. I mean, I know people have told me through the years I thought that at certain points in their lives, they just, they looked at certain people who seemed to have this gift of being able to pray and pray eloquently. And they said, why can't I be like Susie who can pray so eloquently? And you sort of forget, and you really do forget, that prayer is a gift. And for the Christian, prayer is the gift of the indwelling spirit um, and, and the work of the spirit. Um, so that's an important thing to, keep, to be reminded of. Um, and, and really, I would say, avoid that temptation to believe that um, prayer is made valid by, by your own eloquence or by your own ability with words. Um, that's, that's uh, well, it's terrible, isn't it? I mean, it, who wants to live in a world where the only people who can have a great relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ are the eloquence? It's just not so. Okay. Um, question 179. How does God's kingdom come? God's kingdom, which was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, was founded in Christ's incarnation, established with his ascension, advances with the fulfilling of the Great Commission, and will be completed when Christ delivers it to God the Father at the end of time. Okay. This is the biblical um, underpinnings of this understanding of the kingdom. Um, the kingdom is foreshadowed in the Old Testament, yes? Okay. I'm just going to give you the most obvious example. Uh, the people of Israel, what do they want? Right around in Judges. We want a king, we want a king, give us a king, give us a king. And what is the response of the Lord? Israel, yeah. I, no, it's I am your king. What else could you want? And what do they say? We want to be like all the other nations. And what does God say? Okay, fine. You can have Saul. How's that work out? Not terribly well. And then you get David, who is like God's ideal king, yes? His chosen king. How's he work out? Eh, mixed reviews, right? 
And then David's sons. Disaster. About half of his descendants are a complete and total disaster. Um, So the Old Testament shows us that God's kingdom uh, is the thing for which we await. And the prophets start kicking this up big time. They're basically saying, listen, when the Messiah comes, who's the son of David, you will have the perfect king who will reign forever. Okay? So this is, this is an essential thing. Um, we see this in the incarnation, do we not? We just, just had Christmas a month ago. What comes into deep focus at Christmas? The kingship of Jesus, yes? Right? Um, you know, look at look at what all you know, what the angel says to the shepherds and uh, the gifts that the the wise men bring to Jesus. What are they? They're kingly gifts. Okay, kingly gifts. Um, Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. Well, I mean, we should have mentioned this as well. But look look to the cross, right? What's what's written on the titulus above his head in three different languages to proclaim it to the whole world? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Okay? Um, and, and it's in the, New Te- in, in, the, in the accounts of the Passion, you get this rather mocking and grotesque um, depiction of kingship. Um, but it's to show clearly, and it's the truth of history, but it's to show clearly that his kingship is not like what you would expect. Um, it is not the kingship of selfishness. It is not the kingship of narcissism. It's the kingship of outpouring love. His ascension to the right hand of the Father. What is this about? It's exaltation to reign over creation. Um, And it's advanced with the fulfilling of the Great Commission. I mean, listen, when you become a Christian, what what are you saying by this act? Jesus is Lord. And listen, Lord is part and parcel with king. Okay? Um, um, it's even greater than king is in the New Testament. It's kind of this um, overarching. I mean, Caesar is Lord in the ancient world. And the Christian says, no, Jesus is Lord. Okay? Um, and it will be completed when Christ delivers it to God the Father at the end of time. So what we look forward to is a kingdom in which Jesus reigns over all things, um, in which um, not only is this uh, something which is being worked out in the church, but it's also uh, pervasive throughout all creation. His glory uh, being made manifest to all. Okay. So do you get what we're praying for when we say, thy kingdom come in three words? A little bit better? <laughs> okay. This is a prayer for all the hopes of of every nation to come to come to come clear. Okay. I should say this as well. I mean, listen. In the modern world, we have two conce- two warring conceptions of perfection in society. Do we not? One is this kind of capitalist utopian idea that we will get better and better and better at consuming and providing material goods until we get it all right, until everybody has human rights that we think everybody should have, and won't it be great? To which a lot of you are like. I don't know if I want that. <laughs> On the other hand, you have communism, which says we're going to get everything more and more equal, and we're going to endure whatever atrocities, whatever murders have to take place to get to that point. Right? Are we willing to go down that route? 
You see the problem? Okay. Both are a total disappointment. A total disappointment. Now, it's possible one's better than the other in our sinful world, but there you go, right? Uh, I think you probably know where I'm going with that. Uh, but the reality of it is, it's a disappointment. Because, listen, the Christian understanding is not that human society is on an ever-improving trajectory. Christian teaching is that um, we await um, the last day. Um, that, that perfection can only be found in judgment and the exaltation of the glory of God uh, throughout all creation. Okay, so there you go. All right. All right. Done preaching for a bit. Go ahead. <laughs> uh-huh. I would say that um, the, the social gospel movement, which which sort of starts up in the early 20th century, uh, is is, and I'm, I'm I'm not by any I'm, I don't under, I don't pretend to understand it, but um, is an attempt to to apply the gospel to social ills, right? And listen, no no problem here, right? No problem here. And I think throughout the ACNA, you would say most people would say yes, absolutely. That's really and truly important. Um, that the gospel be applied to all kinds of social problems, right? That's, that's, I am not saying the opposite of that. I'm saying absolutely, um, yes, of course. Um, but this idea that we're on this kind of trajectory of history, that everything's going to get continuously better, um, um, listen, if we, if we believe that we can hasten the coming of Christ by improving our societies and getting them right, um, we're missing the point. Um, and I think that's, that's what I would say at the end of the day. Um, so, you know, please understand, like, there's a whole lot of social action going on um, in, in, in the church and has been for a long, long time. I mean, it's just, just the facts. Um, I think what often happens, too, and I, I would say this pretty clearly, is that um, very often um, churches start to act more like NGOs and nonprofit social work organizations than churches, right? And they... And they can tend to exalt um, their uh, their political and social aims above the gospel. Um, and I think I would re- I would respond simply by saying that it's 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 not a question of either or; it's a question of both. Um, and we have to do both. Um, if we if we proclaim the gospel to the poor and we're not about feeding the hungry, for instance. How is that New Testament Christianity? I mean, it's just not. Um, this is this is. I mean, this is the other problem, right? If you've been on Facebook at all, you've seen the whole grand debate about refugees, right? The last few days. If you've been on the news, you've seen the grand debate about about refugees and the refugee crisis. Um, and I've noticed many, many, many Christians saying, "Who cares? These people are probably terrorists anyway, right?" It's kind of like that. And the problem, listen, the problem is not anything but, and a friend of mine pointed this out, the problem is the inherent dualism that so many Christians go about these questions with. They, they literally don't believe that God actually cares about this stuff. Um, 
So I'm willing to just leave it at that and say that no, it has to be both. Um, but, it's, but it is to say that when we pray thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, and that's where we're going with this, um, it's, it's essential that we just not lose the emphasis upon personal discipleship, that we not lose the emphasis upon obedience and prayer and holiness of life and the rest. And that's all I'd say at the end of the day. Okay. All right. You ready? How do you live in God's kingdom? My kingdom life as a Christian consists of living with joy, hope, and peace as a child of God, a citizen of heaven, and a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Okay. My kingdom life as a Christian consists of living with joy, hope, and peace as a child of God. Should we break that down a little bit? Listen, what is Christian joy? Uh oh. <laughs> is it just being happy, happy, happy all the time? No. What is it? Yeah. I mean, it is to say that, um, have you ever taken a, a, a long road trip to a place that you desperately desire to go to, that you're really excited about going to, right? The journey can just be awful at points, right? It can be miserable, but you're still going to go, and why are you going to go? Because the destination is so darn great, right? I mean... Has anybody flown to Europe lately in coach? It's miserable. It's absolutely miserable. And yet, why do so many, those, the backs of those planes are packed. Why? Well, because it's cheap. But because Europe is so great, right? And the, the destination is wonderful. Yeah? Um, that, that's joy. Um, it's that you can even enjoy the terrible food on those flights. You can enjoy all the kind of, you can even you can even find joy in the misery of not being able to sleep well because you're so, you're so amped up that like I'm going to wake up in whatever town I'm going to. Okay, that's just an analogy, but there it is. Okay, hope. Christian hope is this, as Scripture puts it, the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Christian hope looks like this. Well, let me just ask you this question. If you want to keep your ship from being destroyed in a harbor, what do you do? You put it out in the middle of the harbor and you drop an anchor. Why do you do that? So you don't run aground and hit the rocks and sink the ship. Um, Paul refers to hope in this way um, in that despite all the difficulties of life, despite all the trials and all the sufferings, um, we remain rooted in Christ. That's hope. Okay. And peace. Um, now, in the, in the Christian and, and really the Jewish tradition, peace doesn't simply mean the end of war, does it? No, our, we're far more ambitious than that. <laughs> we believe God is far more ambitious than that. What is peace? Yeah, it's the restoration of all things, um, to be as they ought to be. Um, so when we pray 
you know, thy kingdom come uh, for ourselves in the Lord's Prayer and for the church, um, we're praying that things will be as they ought to be, um, that um, we will live our lives as we ought to live them, that we will um, um, experience and know that peace. Um, <clears throat> it also includes living as a citizen of heaven. Um, Paul tells us that our citizenship is what? In heaven. What a great time to talk about citizenship for a moment, okay? <laughs> Since it's so in the news. Um, listen, I mean, one of the most marvelous things that you could, that, you know, should blow our minds as Americans is that we can take our little blue passport and we can go virtually anywhere. Why? Because we're a citizen of the United States of America. Yeah? And that carries more weight than just about anything else. Um, maybe an EU passport would be as good, but, but, and sorry to the Canadians, right? I think probably, you know, I, in all deference to you, Megan, I mean, Canadians probably have the best passport of all, right? I would just say that. Because, uh, you know, the Canadian passport is like carte blanche. Um, yeah. If you travel anywhere in the world and say, I'm a Canadian, people are like, oh my God. We love Canadians. <laughs> They're so nice. And, anyway, okay. Um, citizenship matters, right? I mean, think about this. You as a citizen, are gonna, when you come back from your trip, you're going to land in an airport, and nobody is going to detain you. Nobody's going to hold you in a holding cell at an airport. Um, not an American one, anyway. Not unless they want to get, get a pretty angry federal judge on their case. Um, and a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, this is to say that um, we, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we do so in full expectation that what we are now will come to full fruition. Um, okay, let's do a little bit on the third petition. What is the third petition? The third petition is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will accomplished in heaven? The heavenly company of angels and perfected believers responds to God in perfect willing obedience and perfect worship. Um, well, we know this, right? That, that at least in heaven, God's will is perfectly done, right? Angels worship exactly as they ought to. Saints worship exactly as they ought to. Um, and in fact, um, think about this too for a moment. If you look at you look at worship from that perspective, I mean, this is this is part of the church's liturgical tradition, is it not? We don't we don't worship primarily as sinful human beings who can't really perceive how we ought to worship. What's the pattern for Christian worship? Heavenly worship, yeah? So think about this. When, when I say in the middle of the Eucharist, therefore with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name, and then we sing holy, 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 it's not like we're just sort of doing this parody play in which we're trying to be kind of like heaven. We are literally joining the worship and praises of God in heaven, which are perfect. How's that? Isn't that fun? Okay. 
yay, all right? Uh, that's, that's great. Um, and, and I think it's, it's one, of the, one of the really valuable things about liturgical worship is that it, it, so many Christians actually assume that our worship is just sort of a rough parody of what goes on in heaven. Um, we actually believe that we're entering into the worship of heaven, which is perfect. Now, you might say, but if that's true, then why is my, why is my mind wandering? Right? Well, because you're disordered and sinful and all the rest. But you are joining into something, right, which is perfect. Okay. Um, and, and I would even put it this way. Um, <laughs> part of the reason you're getting distracted in worship is that you're not submitting to worship. You're not entering into it. You're trying to do your own thing in the midst of worship. How's, is that worship? No. Uh, worship is a selfless act. It's, a, it's an act of outpouring of the self. Okay. Where can you find God's will? I can find the will of God outlined in the Ten Commandments, learn its fullness from the whole of Scripture, and see it culminate in the law of Christ, which calls for my complete love of God and my neighbor. Um, yes, we see the will of God outlined in the Ten Commandments. Um, in fact, I would say we see the we see the, we see the will of God um, outlined in Scripture as well uh, as a whole. Um, we learn uh, the fullness of God's will from the whole of Scripture, um, and we see it culminate in the law of Christ. Remember what Jesus um, Jesus reminds us of this. Yes, he reminds us not he doesn't actually give us something new right what does he he recalls us to ponder deuteronomy 6 yes which is what you shall what love the lord your god with all your heart and soul and mind and all your, and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself and he adds this on these two commandments depend or hang all the law and the prophets so if you want a brief overview of what scripture outlines as the will of god what is it yeah, it's that we would love God perfectly. Okay? That's what all heart, soul, mind, and strength means. And that we would love our neighbor as ourself. Okay? So that, listen, what Jesus is calling us to is to love our neighbor with the same kind of zeal with which we lavish love upon our own selves. Selfishly. Um, and even, even more so. Um, now, of course, what's the problem? Can we do this? How's it working out for you? <laughs> we'll have a Dr. Phil moment here. Not very well. Okay. Um, what's the, I mean, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop here, but, but what's the answer? Listen, and I'm going to make this as the last point. Christian perfection does not come by self-assertion and by the exertion of your own mortal power. It's not how it comes. It comes by grace. And if you want to get more grace, how do you get it? You pray. Um, prayer is the center of this life of grace. Um, and indeed, you know, we say a lot, and we should, about the power of the sacraments, yes? Listen, today you are about to walk up that aisle and receive the body and blood of Christ into your mortal body. Um, the way that that grace becomes most active is when you're consistently praying 
uh, for it to be so. Um, when you're consistently um, setting aside uh, your own ambitions and your own desires uh, and asking, um, asking God to move upon you through his grace. Um, so I want to make that appeal very strongly. Um, pray, right? And, and don't, don't, listen, part of the problem, I think, for a lot of people, especially when you're in your kind of late teens, early 20s, and you're in college, as you think, uh, I'm just not very good at prayer, so why bother? Let other people pray. Um, no, you need to pray. And if all that is is you sitting in your room, or preferably kneeling, and just listening for half an hour, um, and if, and if uh, let me give you some practical stuff just for a minute or so, right? Um, Teresa Babila, one of the things she reminds us of is that prayer is, um, is, is, is loving intercourse with God. Yeah? And what happens when two adults get uh, interrupted by a child? Or what should happen? Okay, I realize we're all kind of modern here and we want to let our kids express themselves, but just for a moment, assume that we're not, okay? Um, what should happen? You say, put your hand on my knee and wait. And when the time has come to deal with you, I will turn to you and say, yes, my son, what can I do for you, <laughs> right? Um, this is exactly what Teresa says. When distractions come in prayer, you, you tell them, I will deal with you in 20 minutes when I'm done with this. You're not telling them, go away. You're saying, I will deal with you in the appropriate time. Do you see the order coming through? Okay. Um, and, and the key is really to say, um, to, to do this, to say to those distractions, um, you are not as important as what's going on right now. Because there's something which happens in our bodies when the phone call comes and we hop up away from prayer and we say, okay, there's something more important. Okay. Benedict reminds us of this, in fact, and the rule. Um, according to Benedict, when the, when, the prayer, when the bell rings calling the monks to prayer, he kind of mentions, there is no book that needs writing more than the response to that bell. Um, so, you know, get up out of your place and pray <laughs> when the bell rings. Um, and it's the same for prayer. Um, the, the daily thing that I have to learn is there is no amount of sleep that's more important than me getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning so I can make it to morning prayer at 7.30. Right? Um, there, is, there is no church task more important. Um, when my day-to-day -day occupations displace prayer, I'm impoverished. Um, and you all are impoverished as well. Um, so there's that. Okay, thank you all.